coming from this mentality of academia where I was on this, you know, not even a tenure track path, just a non-tenure track path that was going nowhere, it actually feels pretty good to sit here and look at the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years, and not know which of these paths I'm going to be going down, but knowing that they're all open to me. I'm actually really comfortable with that feeling for once, you know, of knowing that I've got multiple ways that I could try to go at this. Welcome to another episode of Academics Mean Business. I'm your host, Dr. Lindsay Padilla. Today, we have Dr. Jeremy Wells. His undergrad is a legal, the legal stuff, and he really fell in love with contracts, <laughs> something that's not my uh, zone of genius, to say the least. But at one point, he did decide to get his PhD uh, because he did love that kind of contract stuff. Um, and so he decided to get it actually in international politics and was hired right out the gate, which many of us know that's rare, a rare opportunity, was not hired full time per se, not initially, but did, I think, become a full time professor in Texas. And what I love about his story is he he basically created a business that has nothing to do. Well, not nothing. I shouldn't say it that dramatically, but it does not have anything really to do with international politics. He basically liked accounting courses and he went back. He looked at his work, his career, his educational career. And he said, I really enjoyed my accounting classes. And so he met a CPA on Twitter um, who was out franchising his business model, basically. And once he fell out of love with teaching, which he'll explain what was happening at his institution and that kind of thing, he basically decided to become a CPA. So that's the side gig that he's building right now, um, doing services, you know, household stuff, stuff for self-employed folks. So entrepreneurs, if you're looking for somebody to do your taxes, Jeremy is your guy. And we get into a little bit about the difference between like going on retainer versus hourly. And I really like that discussion, too, because as service providers, it's easy for us to feel like we have to go into hourly. But in the end... uh, Setting up retainer packages actually benefits both you and the person who's the client. Um, So we talk a little bit about that at the end. But yeah, he has a really interesting story. And I love when someone connects something from their entire life, not just like their research, which is something that happens a lot on this podcast. So here you go. Here is Dr. Jeremy Wells. Welcome, everybody, to another episode. Today, I have Dr. Jeremy Wells hanging out with us. And he and I met via Twitter, I believe. That's right. That's right. I've been following you for a little bit now and given, you know, what we'll talk about later on, uh, mm-hmm. your your work, your podcast uh, was pretty appealing, especially as I was figuring out how I was going to do this transition. So mm. some, of your, uh, some of your guests have been pretty helpful in my processing and thinking about how to do this. Oh, I love it. Well, yes, we will definitely dive into that. So thanks for coming. Um, and I look forward to hearing a lot about this big transition. And I'm just glad that this podcast is doing exactly what I set out to do, which is just provide, yeah, inspiration, stories of people just doing things a little bit differently. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing where you're at currently and what's going on in your head as you make a lot of these changes. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just getting started. So I don't know how much really I have as far as a story to go to offer the listeners. But you know, I, the, these kinds of stories are becoming more and more prevalent. So, mm-hmm. you know, just throwing my hat in the ring on this one. Yeah. And I mean, I want to have people at all stages of business, at all stages of the transition, if they're if they're planning to leave, if they're not planning to leave. 
Um, I mean, I even think Dave Ng was on, you know, early in the podcast and he had an idea. (laughs) So there is no jumping on too early or having too much or too little story because where you are at right now is probably where a bunch of other listeners will be. So that's exactly how I want to paint it. Like real, (laughs) real, real, real and in real time. So very cool. It doesn't get a lot more real than quitting your job and moving and bringing your family a thousand miles and saying, all right, I got to do something else. This is the plan. Yeah. Well, there you go. So yeah, Jeremy, why don't we start with um, a little bit about your academic background, just so we can know what you studied, um, what your research is in, you know, those kind of fun questions. So all through uh, high school and really the first couple of years of undergrad, I was pretty dead set on law school. I was I was definitely going to be an attorney, you know, watching a lot of a lot of Matlock and and those kinds of shows. And, you know, really, honestly, the uh, the litigation wasn't ever what really got to me. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed the whole courtroom scene. I did teen court in high school, you know, helping helping teens that had, you know, gotten part got it, that had gotten traffic tickets or, or gotten caught with you know, low grade drugs, that kind of thing. And just kind of being another teen advocate for them. And, you know, that was fun and everything, but it was really more of the working with the clients. And that took me more into the business side of law. And so I knew when I was in, when I was starting undergrad that I, I wanted to come at law from more of a writing perspective. I always enjoyed, you know, as much as you can enjoy, but I I was pretty nerdy about it, but enjoyed the legalese thinking about, (laughs) you know, the the technical sides of starting businesses and writing Mm. contracts and making agreements and helping, you know, make sure all the loopholes were closed and all those kinds of things. And so I, about midway through my undergraduate at Berea College, a small liberal arts school in uh, Eastern Kentucky, I decided to add on business as a minor to mm. my major in political science. And so I was looking at political science as more of a pre-law kind of program because school is too small for a pre-law. And then I added the business minor. So the first semester I was going to take business courses, I signed up for a section of business law and then a section of accounting one because that was part of the minor too. And the more and more that semester went on, the more I realized I did not like the business law course, partly because of the the instructor, but also just because of the material as well. But the accounting course was actually pretty fun. At that point, I was so deep into political science. And at the same time, a couple of my friends, my first semester got me into the debate team. And so the intercollegiate debate and all of this, and and, uh, that was pretty fun. And so I started thinking more and more along the lines of maybe litigation was more fun, maybe more of the, the oral side of law. Um, and that kind of turned me away from the business side of things. And then uh, one of the friends from the debate team decided to go to, uh, who was also one of these that was you know just dead set on law school, ended up going to grad school instead to get a PhD in political science. And the more I thought about it, that was seemed to me to be the right combination of both the oral and the written side of things. And as well as, you know, I come from a line of teachers. My mom was a teacher. Her dad was a teacher. And so, and I've got teachers on my dad's side too. And so the, uh, the idea of teaching and, and speaking and all of this really appealed to me. And so by the time I was done with undergrad, I went to, I decided grad school at uh, Louisiana state university. And it was, it was the probably the most fun six years of my life, mm. grad school at LSU. I mean, you know, Mardi Gras and Cajun food and, and LSU football and all of this. And, you know, that really was the, the most fun part of it. And the more I was doing political science, the more I was realizing that, you know, this is interesting. I'm, I'm just not sure if, if this is 
exactly what I wanted to do, but I felt so deep into it. The same way in undergrad, I felt so deep into the political science major that I really didn't know how to shift out of that. When I got into grad school, I really didn't know how to shift out of the academic track either. So I I really enjoyed teaching and I focused on international politics. So this was a subject that I felt like I had a completely blank slate with my students because, you know, in a lot of the fields in math, English, you know, even art, you know, these kinds of fields, they've already had some of that in middle or high school. But, you know, international politics is something you never talk about unless you Mm. are taking a, a course in international politics in college. So, so I had just a blank slate. I could start from scratch. I could do whatever I wanted to with that course. There were no expectations. There was no you know, pre-established curriculum. And th- there was actually a, a side of me that felt like this is, this is entrepreneurial, right? Like I can get into mm. this and make it exactly what I want. And so the, by way of uh, the, the chair in my graduate program, knowing the chair at the school, I ended up working for uh, Texas State University, they needed a full-time lecturer to come in to teach international politics. And so that was my first and now only uh, academic job. Mm. So, so that's, so, so they hired me on to teach international politics and that's, that's what I uh, started off doing. Um, This was my fifth year there at Texas State teaching international politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, I stuck with it for, for Mm -hmm. quite a while, but the more I went on, and this is where I started, you know, doing that whole reflection thing. You've been in something long enough that you start looking back at at what was going through your mind when you were first getting into it compared to where your mind's at now. And I came from, I graduated from a high school class of 22 and I went to a small liberal arts college with 1500. And then here I was teaching at this university with, you know, 36, 37,000 students where I was teaching classes, teaching sections of classes with 20, 30, 40 students in them. And, and those were small classes at that university. You know, I was lucky that the courses I taught had this writing intensive mark in the, uh, in the uh, catalog. And so the, the, the enrollments were actually limited. Of course, they were talking about expanding all of that to fill up classrooms more and this kind of thing. But, the, you know, the more I was there, the more I was realizing that this is just a complete opposite of what Mm. I was used to and what was drawing me into all of this. You know, in undergrad, I looked up to my three political science professors, that that was the whole department, and the relaxed, the calm sense that they had about coming into work, teaching, engaging with students, engaging with other faculty, and not feeling pressure to compete, not feeling pressure to have the best students out there, not feeling Mm. like they're constantly being watched over by the administrators, all these kinds of things. And then I realized I was in this school where it was all about what are the retention and matriculation rates? What are, (laughs) you know, what are the student evals looking like? Uh, Are the students going to the chairs and the deans and complaining about the way the courses are being taught? All of those things never occurred to me as an undergrad. There were things that, that students were doing to express themselves, their dissatisfaction, which, you know, I, I, I perfectly understand, right? But mm-hmm. they, there were methods that were becoming normalized that I didn't even know you could do as an undergrad, right? I didn't know you could, if you, if you weren't happy with a course, you could go to the department chair, you could go to the dean, or, you know, you could go to the provost. I didn't know you could do that. That never occurred right. to me. And I started teaching students that that just seemed very normal. 
right? That that was the way you handled it if you weren't happy with the with the way a course was going. So I was in this in this program and in this situation where it wasn't this you know setup where students come they're, they're seeking an education they they want to set themselves up for a career. I'm not even worried at this point when I'm at Texas State. I'm not even worried about students just being there for the sake of learning. I, I know that's mm. pretty far out the window at this kind of institution. There are some every now and then, but the vast majority of them are there because college is just what you do after high school, right? Yep. And as a as a teacher, seeing them with that mindset of I'm just doing this so that I can move on to the next thing, which is mm. hopefully a career, which is hopefully a job. You know, I started becoming more and more okay with that, you know, or at least trying to be, I started becoming more and more okay with the fact that these students are under such a high amount of pressure because most of them are paying way more than they ever should have to be there to just try to move on to the next stage, whatever it is, and and not really having a clue of what that is either. And combined with that, you know, I mean, all of the the headlines and research that's being done now on the pressures that are facing students, the the emotional, the mental, the psychological, the relationship tolls, all of this on top of the financial tolls, the the, the biological tolls, the physical tolls, right? And I just said, you know, at some point, I don't, I don't really want to be part of this anymore, right? You know, and, and, Mm. and it got to where instead of, you know, saying, instead of seeing students say, this isn't, Maybe this isn't right for me. They didn't feel like they were in that place. And so they had to take that somewhere, right? They had to, Ooh. they had to find a way to make the system work for them. And the response from the institution, which needed those tuition dollars and fee dollars coming in, was to say, okay, fine, we'll take the side of the student, right? And mm. and in more and more cases. And it felt more and more like customer service, right? It felt more mm-hmm. and more like the customer is always right. And I know there's a lot of discussion now about students versus customers and whether we should be using that that analogy mm-hmm. or that comparison. I felt like I was an employee on the floor and my chair was the office manager or the, or the local manager and his <laughs> dean was the regional manager. And it was just up the chain to where mm-hmm. – and, and, and the more I got into it, the more the conversations with my department administrators made it sound like that, right? We got an email yep. from a student – the, the provost office got an email from the student, so it got passed down to the dean's office, which got passed down to my office, and now you're in my office talking to me about it. And I thought, you know, this is not what I signed up for. This is not mm. what I got into this field for. And at the same time, as far as me professionally, I knew I was maxed out as a mm. full-time uh, lecturer in terms of both seniority promotion, you know, that was pretty much going to be it. Um, There was a position that opened up my third year there uh, in my field in the department, a tenure track position, I didn't get picked for it. And so I knew, you know, this is probably going to be it. And Mm. that was going to be it career wise, it was going to be it, you know, uh, salary wise, we had a newborn at the time, we had a new Mm. mortgage payment. And I just said, you know, is this really what we want to do? And I looked at my wife and we started talking about it more and more. And so we started talking about if there was something other than this, you know, what would it be? Where would we be? What would you be doing? How would we support ourselves? All these kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. I looked back and I started thinking about 
you know, I went to this college that had a really strong general studies program that was part of every major. What did I take that ever interested me other than my political science courses? Mm -hmm. And I went Mm -hmm. back to, you know, I didn't like that business law course, but I really did enjoy that accounting course. And so I just started meeting with CPAs in town. I wanted to try to stay on the public service track because of the the, Mm -hmm. the student loan forgiveness. So Mm -hmm. I met with some local finance directors that were working in city and county government, along with some other private CPAs and that kind of thing. And I went to the accounting department and I asked them about taking courses as a, as a faculty member, as, you know, an employee of the college. Well, it turns out that professional development would reimburse faculty and staff after passing a course and this kind of thing, you know? And so I just said, you know, everything seems to be aligning. I'm talking to these CPAs here in the area and they're telling me how great it is. I'm doing research and I'm finding that accounting and CPAs are one of the fastest growing markets in terms of employment in the country right now. There's a new administration, which means there's going to be new tax laws. And this was before yep. the, the 2018 tax law you know, ever happened. But, you know, you just see mm-hmm. those kinds of things on the horizon. And then I went to, to the accounting department of professional development. And they said, yeah, we'll pay for you to take the course as long as you pass. And I just said, I got to do this. You know, it's worth it. So mm-hmm. keeping my full time teaching schedule, keeping a few service commitments to the university, I then tacked on to that about a, a half to three quarters uh student schedule on top of that. And I said, you know what, I'm going for it. And so that first fall, uh, which would now be a year ago, I, a year ago now, uh, actually, I started taking uh, my first accounting courses. I got in touch with a CPA over Twitter. Um, you know, it's amazing the relationships you can make over Twitter. So, you know, it, yep, it, it, yep. it can it can just be a cesspool, but it can also be a great source of introductions. And I happened to meet a CPA out. He was out in Southern California. He's now in Dallas, Texas. But I reached out to him because I had heard him on a podcast of his where he was saying he was interested in sort of franchising his business model, which is different from the standard accounting model. So the standard accounting model is you've got the brick and mortar firm. You come in, they bill you hourly. They might bill you by the workload, by the, you know, how, how much you need them to do. He was entirely online. He, uh, bills monthly. So you sign up for mm-hmm. a subscription with him essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's 24, seven, 365 days a year, whatever questions, financial questions you have, you run it by him. He helps you out. Yep. And I said, you know, that seems really interesting as somebody who wasn't brought up in accounting. That sounds like a much simpler way of doing it than mm-hmm. billing by the yep. hour, billing by the form, whatever. So that same fall that I started taking accounting courses, he and I started talking and he told me, if you will go get this certification, this credential called becoming an enrolled agent, and you okay. get that done by tax season, I will help you get your own business started and I'll help and I'll send some of the work that I need done to you and you can build up experience, right? And so, nice. so yeah, so I spent on top of taking my first accounting courses and still maintaining my teaching load, I started studying for this for these three exams that the IRS gives that mm-hmm. help you become an enrolled agent. And essentially what this is, is you, you pass these exams that say, okay, you know more than the average Joe about how federal taxation works. And we will give you this credential that makes it to where uh, you can represent taxpayers before the IRS, mm-hmm. um, you know, if they get into an audit or something like that. I pass the exams, no problem. Uh, and they're, they're not, they're not particularly easy tests, but, um, Mm. got through them. And, you know, this was an indication to the CPA that, 
you know, had told me about this that, okay, I'm serious. I want to do this because there was some investment into the study course. There was some investment into just paying to go take the exams. And by the time I got into this past uh, January, I had the exams passed. I had the business set up, uh, the LLC. I was brought into his workflow and now taking three courses this past spring, three accounting courses and maintaining Mm. that teaching load. I just started, I just started filing tax returns for people. (laughs) And on top of that, so, so working on some of his clients, getting some of my own clients. And that is when I said, you know, when I got through that first tax season, we got around into late April and May. And I said, you know what, if I can survive all of this, you know, plus having a a newborn baby at home and a wife, (laughs) if I can survive all this, I think I can be an accountant. And that, mm-hmm. that was pretty much it. And so this past summer is when I said, you know, I, I think it's time for a move. I, I just think it's time for mm. a move because when it, when it really hit me was when I sat down and, and I had, I think that day I had just written some emails off to some clients and I said, you know what, I would rather be writing these emails to these clients, helping them talk about their finances than I would be teaching courses on international politics. Yeah. And that, and yeah. that's just when it hit. And that's when my wife and I decided to make this move. Where are you guys based now? So we were in uh, San Marcos, Texas, which is where Texas State University uh-huh. is. And um, okay. we didn't particularly like it. So my family is all from Western Kentucky. Her family is from Florida and, and Georgia. So for a few years there, it was just, okay, we're far from our parents. That's, you know, we don't like that, but it, it's it's a necessity right now, you know, because academia, this is one of the things a lot of academics know is it's really hard to find good academic jobs close to family, right? Mm-hmm, um, you mm-hmm. know, you got to be willing to move. Well, we always knew we wanted to be closer to family and then the baby came and then it was like, mm-hmm. no, we've really got to do something different. And so we decided to relocate to her, uh, the town where her parents met, the town where her parents want to retire, um, which is St. Augustine, Florida. And it's a mm. beautiful city. It's right on the coast. It's the it's the nation's oldest city. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of culture. Oh, cool. And, you know, we were coming from central Texas where it's dry and brown and <laughs> barbecue and honky tonk, you know, and, and, and then mm-hmm. we, you know, and, and we had come out here to vacation to spend some time with her parents a few times. And we just knew that that was going to be a lot better situation that way, you know, the, our baby would be close to the grandparents growing up, mm-hmm. which would make it things easier for us. And, you know, it just, it just made sense. And actually, you know, we got here, uh, for the first uh, about six weeks, didn't really know what we were going to do. And then in the same couple weeks, I got offered a job with a CPA here in St. Augustine and oh, nice. we found a condo in the same complex that we're staying in my wife's parents for a really good deal. And so it was another one of these times where it just seems like things are kind of falling into place for us. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to take advantage of this. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it just kind of worked out, uh, you know, for a while there, yeah. it, we didn't know while there we were like, you know, we're lucky enough to be staying in this, uh, condo rent free, you know, utility free bill free, but, but at the same time, it's a one bedroom condo and we've got a baby. And so right now our laundry room is serving also as a nursery, which is interesting, mm. you know, and, and yeah. it's, uh, but you know, we, we were so dedicated to making that change because we knew mm. that it was the right time and it was the right thing to do for us that, you know, we, we both knew that it was going to get, you know, it was going to get uncomfortable. It might even get expensive, but 
we need to do this because mm-hmm. spending the rest of our lives in central Texas, so far from family, so far from where we mm-hmm. wanted to be working in a job that I knew was not going anywhere, no matter mm-hmm. how much at one point I may have loved the idea of that job, it just didn't make sense anymore. Yeah. That part about your story too, like hearing that things started to fall into place, I it reminds me of just other decisions that I started to make too. I think once you kind of put it out there that like, oh, I could this could be different. And sometimes it ends up being easier just because you start looking for opportunity and things fall into place. And so it doesn't have to be hard or you don't even know how how it has to happen. But then what ends up happening is you get supported in all these different ways just by choosing differently, especially when you know this isn't working. I feel like I'm running uphill, right? Like versus living, right? Or, or you know, putting out there what, putting out there that, hey, I think a different path may work for me and then realizing that it comes back in all these different ways. And so I heard that in your story. That's really cool. And I wanted to say something else too. I wrote down this, that your international politics, like teaching that felt uh, entrepreneurial because there wasn't like students didn't have any preconceived notion. I feel the same way about sociology. I've never (laughs) heard it said that way, but that's exactly what I loved about sociology. Students would come in. I don't even know what this is. And I'm like, oh, let's just have fun. And that was such a great position to be in. So I've never equated it to being entrepreneurial. But now that I look back, it, yeah, it felt like I could do anything and I was making them better people because I think the subject is just so good to get people to think about how they, you know, interact in the world in groups and p- as part of institutions. So I was just like, oh, I love it. So that was great. That was a big aha for me. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you yeah. know, to, to the point of, a, of it being one of my faults in academia because I committed the cardinal sin over and over again. I kept rewriting the syllabus and picking new textbooks uh. because <laughs> I knew the yep. student, you know, that there was no, it, it was one of the courses where there was no pre-established curriculum, you know, more and nope. more you yep. go in, especially when you're talking about intro level courses, especially in topics that yep. are more sensitive, like in the social sciences, you're getting more mm-hmm. and more universities and departments that have pre-established syllabi with pre picked mm-hmm. textbook and this course I had free will so it was so easy awesome. to get into a course in a few weeks in be like you know what actually I don't like this textbook and I wouldn't even be halfway yeah. through a course before I'd be figuring out how I was going to completely restructure it the next course to the point at which my wife who is not even an academic but she was with me through pretty much from the dissertation phase on um, mm-hmm. so she knew enough and and I had talked to her enough about it that even she was getting onto my case about rewriting syllabi and picking new textbooks, you know, through the first few years at, at Texas state, but it just, it never felt right. It never felt like I mm. was having the impact that I wanted to have. It never felt like I had the, 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 the mastery of the, the way I was teaching it, you know, I, I felt confident in the material. I never felt confident in the way I was delivering it to the students. And contrasting that with where I'm at now, where, you know, you can, you can know the basics of the tax code and you can know how to fill out a, a return, but there are still 
questions about how we manage an, uh, a family's or a company's finances that are still mm-hmm. gray areas for even, you know, sure. well-known established CPAs, even, you know, it, it, this is why we have tech shelters. This is why we have, you know, companies mm-hmm. that are able to make billions of dollars and not pay any taxes on them because mm-hmm. there there is this entire industry of finding all of the loopholes and finding all of the ways to twist the code, the tax code to your favor. And so nobody is really a master of all of this. Even the people writing the Mm -hmm. tax code don't understand a lot of what they're writing into (laughs) it. I mean, just look at the last six months in terms of, you know, the confusion over what are we going to do in terms of applying the the new tax law, right? And, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I feel like when you have a client, as opposed to a student, when you have a client, somebody who is paying you directly saying, Mm. tell me what to do with this lump sum of money, or tell me what to do so that I'm planning my estate, or tell me what to do so that I make sure that this business gets legally and financially created in the proper way. You know, you, you really sit down and you provide a, a concrete understanding of how this is going to work and play out, at least in terms of the structural side of things. And it, it just felt so opposite of, of the uh-huh. way teaching went in a good way for me, right? You know, Mm -hmm. I felt like I was confident going into the room. And then by the time I was done, I was praying that some of it soaked in, you know, some of it made sense. And now I feel like I'm coming at this from, I'm learning it all too. But after an hour long conversation with a client, I feel like we're both walking away with pretty good sense of what's going on. That's good. Yeah. And, And you brought up that, you know, in the description of where you started to I don't know, like feel the friction in academia that the student as a customer, but it's still they're a customer, but they're not like it's in such a roundabout, like, you know, inadvertent way, they're a customer, but they're not directly paying you every time they walk in the door. So they don't, you know, and many of them, their parents are paying yes. their bills or they'll like scholarship money or, or their yeah, right, yeah, loans. Right. So they're not actually having that energetic transaction, which is something that I've tapped more into in running a business too. And it's something that I really had to learn because I'm such a product of academia. I didn't realize how that was impacting what I saw as work, you know, what my time, like how my time was valued because that exchange wasn't happening. And now that exactly what you're bringing up, now that I have clients and people that I serve and courses that I'm creating that people pay me for, it feels different. And in a positive way, there is some sort of transformation in the transaction that happens um, in it, it, you know, it's not a full transformation, but that just the mere act of saying, I'm going to commit, you know, whatever, $997 to this thing. And then, and then, you know, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, which is a whole other conversation, but you're bringing up something really interesting. And I think that, and that may be one of the problems with the language in institutions reverting to this very business oriented space and being like, oh, they're customers and like, you know, you know, institutions are branded. And I mean, there is a whole bunch that we could go down the line of, yeah, the business model of higher education. But that I think directly what you're bringing up is, is I felt that as well. Very interesting. I was told by an undergraduate advisor at Texas State, my old institution, that the term that the administrators were using uh, was revenue generators. 
that it wasn't it wow. wasn't students anymore. It was revenue generators. And so wow. in terms of thinking about curriculum and policy and how we're treating students, we need to be thinking of them That's, in terms of revenue mm-hmm. generators. And look, I love my clients. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to sure. work hard for my clients and I'm going to earn the money that they're paying me. And, and sometimes I think I'm doing more than earning the money that they're paying me. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't go into academia to walk into a room full of revenue generators. You know, I, 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 yeah. wa- I wanted to walk into a room full of, and, and like I say, I, I didn't, I didn't go in with the expectation that they were all just these, you know, just waiting to soak up all the knowledge of everything that I want to lay out for them. <laughs> right. I, I knew better than that because I knew how I was in undergrad. I was a terrible, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, I did well in my courses and that kind of thing, but from a perspective of thinking about that ideal student, they're all going to come in and have all the reading mm-hmm. done and having studied and, you know, being ready mm-hmm. and, and well-polished <laughs> papers that they took to the writing center and all this stuff. You know, I was terrible at all that. So I knew, I knew yeah. my students, you know, that were coming from a very different background, you know, on average than I had come from, I knew that it was going to be even more of a struggle for them. But at the same time, I did not expect the level of just trying to get through without having a complete nervous breakdown or a financial meltdown, Mm. you know, and at the same time, be so nervous that every grade on every assignment or every bit of criticism that came out of me either in writing or, or verbally was going to be turned into a, a reason to doubt my integrity or to doubt my ability mm. to teach the subject, you know, and, mm-hmm. and now I look at my clients and I say, you know, you're paying me to do this work for you to, to file your taxes mm-hmm. and in the me and, and to give you financial advice. And if you ever have yep. a problem with the way I'm doing that, fire me. You know, like, and and just move on and find somebody else to do this work for you. And I don't want you to do that. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather us resolve this. But if it's just not working for you, then fire me. But you can't look at a student and say, well, drop the class, you know, because I would have Mm. ones that, you know, even during that, that first few weeks of the semester where they can withdraw, start going and complaining to the chair. And I'm thinking you have, you know, we're teaching, we've got half a dozen sections of this course so that it, yep. it's open to your schedule, it's open to your terms, and you would rather, it, and this would all be without me ever knowing it too. I got so many, mm-hmm. you know, yep. and, and this would happen to the, uh, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like this is all my students, you know, it would be maybe one or two a semester. But, you know, when it's one or two mm-hmm. a semester, but it's every semester out of the, you know, one to 200 students I'm teaching. Well, you look at that and it's, it's you know, it's 1%. You know, you've got a 1%. Mm-hmm dissatisfaction, you know, customer dissatisfaction, mm-hmm, rate, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'm sorry, but, but no company in the world would have a problem with that, right? If you had 1% no, of your not customers not come back, you're doing really well. But when mm-hmm. it's one student <laughs> out of a hundred every semester, that's all the chair and the undergrad advisor think about yep. when you yep. go to them, asking them for funding to go to travel to a conference. When you come to them mm-hmm. asking to be allowed to teach an upper level course in your specialization when you go to them asking them for grant money to bring in a, a speaker, you know, for something like that, right? Anytime you need them to sign off, so true. it comes back to, well, you know, we hired you as this, you know, full-time lecturer. Your job is to teach and we keep hearing complaints, you know, and it's like, mm. yeah, but what you're not hearing is the other 99% of the yeah. students <laughs> who are just yep. fine. Yep. And, you know, mm-hmm. when, I think that was kind of the, the the last straw for me because if if somebody's going to have a problem with me, I want them to come to me so that I at least have a chance to resolve it. But when you walk mm-hmm. down the hallway 
of the institution you're at and you see flyers and posters announcing the next meet the dean session, meet the provost session, meet the president session. And I'm thinking, you know, that's all well and good, but this is fostering this system where if I am struggling in a course, if I have a problem, if I didn't like the last grade I got, well, these are the people I go tell, right? Yeah. They bypass the teacher. Yep. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. And I, I, for for every one or two of those students that I would hear about, it was always later in the semester and it was always, I never knew that student had a problem. Mm-hmm. They came to, they came to most of the class meetings. Right. They turned the assignments in. They never said a word to me. I, I would search through my emails and have no emails from mm-hmm. them. And this student is now going to the chair about me, you mm-hmm. know? And so in this field, I also knew in picking, you know, what, what alternative field mm-hmm. I wanted to look at. I knew I wanted a field where if there's a problem, I have to know about it. Mm. You know, there, there's no way that you can get around me <laughs> to tell me that there's a problem. Yeah, you pick and, something. And that, I yeah. mean, dealing with people's money is pretty, <laughs> that's yeah, like pretty emotional. Right. That's pretty like exactly. high stakes. So that's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it. I, look, I, you know, it, it's a lot of down on, on academia, but you know, I'm, I'm fresh out of it. So sure. there's still some raw emotion there. there. There's still some, you know, unprocessed feelings. Mm-hmm. And, and none of that is to say that I didn't love the work that I yeah. was doing. A lot of the people that I got to meet, a lot of the students that I had that really mm. were motivated. I wrote, you know, for every student that went and complained, I wrote 10 students letters of recommendation to mm-hmm. graduate programs, to internships, mm-hmm. you know, all of the stuff mm-hmm. that, that, you know, I really felt like they deserved those programs they were trying to get into. You know, I had one that checked in with me just a couple months ago. So right before I started making this move, telling me that, you know, and I had written him several recommendations to get into internships working in Washington, D.C., and he finally got into one awesome. and he sent me pictures uh, standing there with the people that were working in his office. Some of them people that you see in the news, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, these kinds of, you know, cool. shaking hands with these people and sending me pictures of the, you know, the, the official photographs of, the, of these kinds of handshakes and things and telling me that he was applying to a graduate program in foreign policy and that, you know, all of this was coming back to, he really enjoyed this course I taught, you know, and so there are still, you know, I'm always going to have those memories of, of what I was able to do in yep. academia, but, you know, I'm also going to have those memories of, you know, ha- being called into the chair's office, like mm. I was being called into the principal's office, yep. you know, or the manager's office for, for not doing something right that day. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I just, I wasn't willing to say, this is my career mm. that as good as it can get, you know, of, of saying, look, here's this star student that I had an impact on, but at the same time, any day now, a student could put in a complaint that's going to put my job in jeopardy. Mm. You know, that was just way too, way too up and down yep. for yep. me. I needed a little bit more, just a little bit more certainty and stability. Mm. And I know, I know in employment and especially in self-employment, there's no such thing as certainty, but I mm. just needed a little bit less of the the constant up and down. Like, am I going to get a call from my chair today? Am mm. I going to get a call from the undergrad director today? 
Yeah. It's so interesting because, yeah, academic jobs are typically associated with <laughs> certainty and stability, particularly, obviously, yeah. the tenure track, right? Um, yep. So it is interesting that you say that. But what I think that entrepreneurship has done for me, yes, it's riskier, but it's more in my hands. So I have more control over what I like. Oh, I like selling this. I don't like selling this or I want to create something. It feels more like I'm in charge of where I'm going to end up. And so I think what you're bringing up is was also a fear for me, even as you know, I was on the tenure track. I left before I got tenure. I probably would have gotten it. But at any given point, you know, I had similar thoughts too. My pedagogy was a little out there in some instances. And yeah, I could have a, t a student who didn't like my style um, could easily take you down. And, and so that's the kind of thing that I think starting a business made me realize like, oh, yeah, the job is quote unquote safe. Um, yeah. And I enjoy it, which is a positive. But like, I don't, I don't have any, you know, with that stability came a very specific income, you know, begging for, you know, raises here and there. And that was it. And that was what I signed up for. And then when I realized, oh, I could create, I, and, and that's what I think entrepreneurship has done for me. It's about creation. Um, and I'm more creative and I'm more alive in so many ways because um, I'm in control, I guess. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I just, that, that first, uh, this past spring, when I when I started the I started the business and I, I was doing that on the side mm -hmm. as well as taking courses, you know, I just looked at it as like, you know, every if you think about it, academia is it, it puts you because of the the you know the three aspects of it, you know, the, the teaching, the research, and mm -hmm. the service, right? Mm -hmm. That you always get pounded into your head, mm -hmm. right? How are you going to how are you going to balance these and mm -hmm. at the same time look like you're a star mm. on all of these, especially the research, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, how are you going to look like you're balancing them, but also like it's really so easy. doing a hundred percent to <laughs> yeah. all three, right? Yep. Exactly. You know, and I thought about it, you know, nobody, nobody in academia, if you really look at it, very, very few are, are actually balancing them. No. A lot of them are focusing on one mm -hmm. and doing a second one you know, maybe, maybe almost as much. And then the third one gets kind of written off. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and it was like, academics are essentially thinking about it in terms of, I have my main job and I have my side gig. And for mm. some, that main job is research and that side gig is teaching. Mm. For some, it's the other way yep. around. Yep. For some, you know, I even had some at Texas State because it was so, I mean, when I, when I was at Texas State, they crossed the threshold where more than half of the full-time faculty were non-tenure track, yep. you know? Yep. And so, for so many of them, research was never a priority nope. because what's the point if you're not on the tenure track, yep. right? And so service became a priority mm. for a lot of them that I ran around with. In fact, I toyed with that idea for a while. Maybe I'll make service, you know, my main component and, you know, use teaching as a way to get into that somehow, right? And so I knew some that saw service as their main job and, and teaching as their, as their side gig. And I said, you know, academics to me, if anything, I can walk into accounting and look at academics and especially look at some of the successful ones who have, you know, successful in terms of they've created side businesses based on the work that they did in academia, mm. based on an interest that they've had in academia, which I've heard several of them on your podcast sure. and other, you know, other, other podcasts in, in the, in the higher education and academia genre. And, you know, it seems like there is a right market there for, adjuncts that are looking to supplement yep. their income, professors that have 
you know, they're fine at their associate or full professor status, and they just want a little bit more of a challenge. So yep. They're doing something on the side, right? And so this mentality of you've got your main job and you've got your sidetrack is already built into point. that academic mentality. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. So tell me, let's get into a little bit about your business because so what I'm hearing is you're doing some stuff locally, it sounds like, but I see you online and you're referencing working with other academics and maybe doing their books and that kind of thing. What's your business structure look like right now? So uh, what I set up after right uh, right after the start of the year mm-hmm. was a primarily a, a tax uh, service. Okay. Um, as an enrolled agent, my specialty, you know, as far as the credential is in, is in federal taxation. But for ninety nine percent of people and businesses out there, your your state and local taxation is you know flows from your federal tax filing, right? So I I primarily do taxes, um, but. Uh, along with that, because of the accounting training, I can also do bookkeeping. Oh, I can cool. also do financial advising. I can do all of these mm-hmm. things. So what the the services that I'm putting out there for my clients are either if you're an individual or a family and you're just looking for, uh, you know, that, that sort of household level financial mm-hmm. advising and tax work and financial planning, that is one plan that cool. I offer. The other plan is if you are, and th- and that first plan is primarily for, you know, if you're also just a, just a W2 wage earner, you know, ah, you, okay. you've got your career, you, you know, you're getting, you're an employee. If you are self-employed or if you have a side gig or you're running your own business, that kind of thing, there's a separate plan uh, for that. And that plan includes both your individual or household uh, return and planning and all that, as well as the business. Mm. So this is something, this is the business model that I just adopted from the CPA that I've been working mm-hmm. with that really tries to simplify down the way we think about that professional client relationship, yep. right? So I, I'm not charging, I'm not billing you by the hour. No. So you don't have to worry yeah. about when you call me or email me with a question, you don't have to worry about, you know, am I going to you know, is it going to be how much per hour is this going to be and how many hours is it going to take? You don't have to worry about that. It's not performed. So you don't have to worry about your your tax return being so complex or, you know, if you want me to review your estate plan or something like that, how many pages you're sending me, none of that. It's just a straight monthly commitment. And yep. so for that, uh, you get the full service of whichever one of those plans you're on. And the the, the idea there is that this needs to be a relationship. It's not yep. transactional, yep. right? You, you need to trust me. And at the same time, you need to be paying me, right, mm-hmm. uh, regularly so that you can schedule that and, and plan for that. I can schedule it and plan for it. And at the same time, in between, you know that you're covered. Yep. You know that if a letter from the IRS shows up and you don't know what it means, you just take a picture of it with your phone and send yep. it to me <laughs> and I figure it out for you. That if you start getting forms in in January and February, you just upload them to the server that we use to keep all of those documents and you don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm going to make sure they get on your taxes right. If you're sitting there middle of the year and you're trying to figure out how the new tax law applies to mm. you, you just shoot me an email, you know? And and that's the kind of relationship I want that's good. that where the the client knows that I am there ready to help and and they don't need to be worrying more about how much is it going to cost me yep. or you know what you know, I'm going to get this bill two months later and not know where these charges mm-hmm, came from. That's mm-hmm. not at all what we're trying to go for. And, you know, unfortunately, this is the way a lot of the accounting industry is set up yep. because, and, and there's actually a lot of 
a lot of podcasts, a lot of books, a lot of eBooks kind of thing that I've been doing in my research of, you know, when I, when I get to the point to where I'm expanding this business into a, a full fledged firm, you know, mm-hmm. something like this, you know, how do I want to structure these yep. things? And there's a, there's a lot of debate right now about this, this hourly versus mm-hmm. product mm-hmm. versus uh, monthly Package, or yeah. yearly kind of, mm-hmm. you know, billing structure. And on one level, it's just, this is how I'm making money. But on another level, it's, this is how I'm relating to this relationship. Client. This is the mm-hmm. basis of the relationship, right? Yep. And I've actually gotten to the point to where I've had clients come to me in their initial consultation and say, look, you're, you're, you're relatively inexperienced. I mean, I had clients say to me, you're relatively inexperienced. I've been talking to CPAs that have been doing this for 20 or 30 years, you know, and this is, I just got through my first tax season, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, you know, people who, who are specialized in this, but I don't want to worry about hourly billing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to worry about paying perform. I mm-hmm. love that you do a monthly plan. I love that I can actually develop a relationship with you. I love that if I have questions, I can just come straight to you. And so yeah. I've had clients come to me just based on that model. That structure. Um, and, and, you know, the, like I say, the CPA that I've been working with, he's the one that really pushed this to the point at which I didn't really ever know any other way of running this kind of business, (laughs) Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. And so I kind of came into it backwards where I set up the business and started working with clients. And now I'm coming to a place where I'm looking at how the rest of the field operates, where traditionally you have students that as undergrads know they want to be accountants. And so they go through the undergrad trajectory Mm -hmm. and then they go, they compete for internships and part-time jobs and then full-time jobs in the big accounting firms. And then they Hmm. come out and then they try to create their business and then they try to get their clients, you know, and so I've kind of done this very backwards. From, I love it. From the way a lot of them have, right? Yeah. You know, I came into it, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to get clients yep. and then, you know, test this and see, you know, test myself, see yep. if I want to do this kind of work. And now to the point to where I put myself out there to uh, some CPAs here in the area. Uh, so, so this is where we're at now where I've just accepted a job offer from a CPA here in town. He's got a very small firm. I'm going to be probably is his the last new employee that he takes on he you know he he really wants to keep it to where it's at he's got this little 100 year old house downtown that he bought and renovated and this is his firm and you know the clients just drop by he's got this little paver driveway that's mm. two parking spots and the clients they just drop by they drop off documents he stops and chats with them he you know wears khakis or jeans most <laughs> days you know and it's just a very calm informal kind of practice and i always you know my wife when i drove her by this, this office of his, which is actually a house from the outside. Um, and I said, you know, this is, this is where I'm going to be working now. She said, you know, whenever you describe having your own place, this is exactly what you describe, mm. you know, you just something small, quaint, that is client friendly, client centric. It's right in the middle of where they're at. You know, it's not this high rise that's downtown. It's not, mm. you know, all these kinds of things. And so, it just really seemed to click. And and we met a couple of times for, for interviewing and, and thinking about, you know, whether I was going to come work for him or not. And everything just seemed to click into place to the point at which before I'm even uh, supposed to technically start working for them, he, uh, he invited me to uh, the, the city newspaper uh, every year does a best of the best. And so they come out with like, it was crazy. It was like 150 different categories of the best bakery in town, the best, you know, auto dealer in town, the best mechanic in town. And he was one of the nominees for best CPA in town. Mm. And 
after meeting the guy a couple times and just, you know, just going through sort of a formal employment kind of interview type thing. And then him actually giving me the offer, but saying, you know, you're not actually going to start until a month from now so that I can get all the paperwork ready. He went ahead and invited me to this event with him and the rest of his staff and ended up getting winning best CPA uh, for 2018 for the city. And, you know, this is all I'm getting to enjoy all of this before, you know, even actually really working for him. Mm. And the the next day he uh, sent me a text message saying, thanks, really appreciate you coming out. Love that we're all going to be working together and can't wait, you know, can't looking forward to it. So it's it's. Again, it's one of these, another one of these situations where it feels like things are falling into place just right. And th- there was something about, like I said, the the my chair at LSU when I was a grad student there, and the chair at Texas State, knowing each other, and so that's how I kind of walked into oh, this to this full time uh-huh. job. And it felt like, oh, this is everything falling into place, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. You know, and then it made it to where it was too easy, right? Because mm. you, you know, I looked at I looked at all of my other cohort that was, you know getting called up for interviews, going to the big conferences to do their preliminary interviews and, and putting out their applications and this kind of stuff. And like they were competing for these tenure track jobs and, and, and really having to work hard for it. And here I was just kind of walking into this, (laughs) you know, adjunct job that really wasn't what I wanted to be competing for either, you know, Mm -hmm. and this, this felt much more like, I wasn't just walking into it. It wasn't mm. something that was just going to be this part-time arrangement that could turn permanent. No, this was, this is, I, yeah. you know, he, he grilled me. He brought yeah. me in for an interview. I had to compete for this job. Yeah. Um, and I got it. And, but in a way that fell in line with what we were trying to do and why we moved here. Um, yeah. So, so there was, there was always a, an, an aspect of academia that felt like, I've got a job in this, but I didn't get it the way I wanted to get it. Mm, interesting. You know? And that, mm-hmm. that, that never sat right either, sure. I guess. Sure. Yeah. 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 Super interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like what I thought, what I think is really interesting too, about where you're at in business too is, or, or what's like cool maybe about being a business owner and just having the chance to go different directions in academia. It's just so specific. Like you then either go into admin or you, you know, go for the tenure track job and it's just, that's it. Those are your options. And, and with this, it's like, oh, you can work with someone locally and you can take clients online and you can decide to expand and have a firm or you can decide to charge hourly. Like again, back to this idea of having control and the freedom to make those choices. Well, I sat there and I looked at it and I said, you know, so, so at Texas state, they, they called the, um, sort of the, the, I think, uh, when I left, there were, it it was 20 something different designations that they gave to non-tenure track faculty. I mean, it was this ridiculous list of all of the different titles (laughs) that we had come up with to call people other than assistant professor, associate professor, professor, right? (laughs) You know, we're trying to come up with so many fancy titles for these people that it all just comes up to, you're never going to get tenure, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I was thinking about it one day and it's like, you know, back to, like I said, you know, maybe I'll use teaching as a way to figure out my service niche and then specialize in that. And then maybe I could get into, you know, cause I, I had a guy that, that I worked with a lot and, um, Texas State has this annual theme that they give to a lot of the public events and and public speakers coming on called the Common Experience. And they also tie the Common Reading Book into it for the first year students and all of this. And so, um, you know, he he managed to use working as an adjunct in the English department 
as a way to get involved with that common reading selection program and then became the director of that. And because that's such a critical component of the common experience, last year, I think, was his first year of taking over as director of the whole common experience program. And so I looked up, up to him as sort of an example of like, you know, I can use this as a way to build up. And then I just kept looking at it. And it's like, those kinds of opportunities are so few and far between. Mm. And even if they are there, they're always going to pick somebody on the tenure track who wants yep. those kinds of positions yep. first. Because as so at, at Texas State, the the international relations, you know, what I taught, that course was called Introduction to International Studies because they had spun off about a decade ago the Center for International Studies out of the political science department. Okay. Made it its own center, right? So it's not it's not technically a department or a school, but you know, it's its own center. And so there's a director. And for years, my first few years there, I was told, you know, this is something you should go for. The the person in charge of it's from the history department. The the director of international studies is from the history department, and he's getting close to retirement age. And political science would love to to have a relationship with that center again because we taught the intro course, but the rest of the core, the rest of the the program was interdisciplinary. So you need to compete for trying to be director of this. Well, his the, the, the director's assistant was also from the history department and was much younger and it was, mm-hmm. he was on the tenure track and I'm sitting there thinking this whole time, you need to compete for this position. They're just going to pick the They're assistant director. The like, what, what are you mm-hmm. talking about? Mm-hmm. I'm not in line for anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm non-tenure track. I, you know, I'm not even in the department that the current director is in and you know, he's going to look for at his colleagues first. And, and I just said, you know what? No, I, I want to be in a position where, yeah, right. Like you're saying that, that I'm in charge, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that I'm in charge of my destiny as, as well as the structure of, of what's happening here. And that if I get to a place to where I want to hire people to where I need to fire people to where, you know, I want to give people raises or bonuses or these kinds of things, you know, I'm the one making those decisions. I'm not yep. just waiting for the scraps of those decisions to come down my way. Yep. Boom. So, I would love to hear where you're taking your business. I mean, we, it's, you know, I was like, oh, maybe you'll have a firm. What, what is your kind of goal? What are you thinking? Or, I mean, I know it's really early kind of stages, but what's your vision? Well, accounting is one of the, you know, because it's this client-based field. Sure. um, There, there's all kinds of issues with non-compete, non-solicitation, which you get into it. Right. And I actually got really lucky with, the, the firm that I'm going to be working for is letting me keep my business on the side as nice. long as I keep it where it's at, right? Mm-hmm. And so I keep getting to work with my clients. I don't have to bring them. Th- this was an issue with some other CPAs that I had actually interviewed with is they wanted to just onboard my clients. Well, once they do uh, that, I'm no longer in charge of the billing structure. I'm no longer in charge uh-huh. of the terms of the relationship. I'm no longer in charge of the services that I can provide for them, right? And I didn't want to give that up. So I actually turned down some offers right after we moved mm-hmm. in. This is part of why it took almost two months to, to find a, a, a you know, right employment fit. once we got here because I stuck mm-hmm. to my guns, you know, with with Good no guaranteed income other than the little bit we were getting from this proto business that I had formed over the last <laughs> six months, you know, and you know, with a with a with a wife and a baby and staying in, you know, the 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 in laws condo. No, I stuck to my guns and I said, this is, you know, these are my clients. I'm going to keep these clients. And that was that was actually acceptable to the to the CPA that I'm going to start working for here in a little bit. And as long as 
I maintain that same client list and I'm not doing anything to compete with his business, you know, so I'm not out here trying to get clients of my own in this region, that kind of thing. Um, he's happy with me keeping that, which yeah. means, you know, I can work for him for 40 years or, yep. you know, four yep. months and my business is still my business. Yep. And he was really open to that. And, and, you know, I, I really appreciated that. And that was another signal of, you know, this guy is somebody willing, you know, that, that he's willing to work with me as again, this relatively junior, relatively inexperienced person asking him for a job, but I want to keep my business on the side. And he was actually open with that. So um, that worked out really well. So the plan uh, is, to keep that business going, keep those clients happy, but not have to bring them into any kind of different structure, especially after some of them came to me because they like the structure that I offer mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and see what happens with this firm that I'm working with. Um, because, you know, in accounting, because it's all based on the idea of partnership, right? There's always opportunities for, for becoming a partner, for, uh, you know, going out and getting your own clients, these kinds of things. I, you know, he and I haven't gone that far. I'm just getting started. So I don't want to push those kinds of ideas, but it's definitely something down the road that, you know, as I gain experience, as I work closer toward becoming a, a, a full-fledged uh, CPA to, to keep in mind. And so whether that means becoming part of his firm or some other firm that I might go work for, or just developing my own business into a firm, that, you know, like you said, it, it's still really early. So I've still got all these kinds of paths uh, open. Mm-hmm. And coming from this mentality of academia, where I was on this, you know, not even a tenure track path, just a non-tenure track path mm-hmm. that was going nowhere, right? It actually feels pretty good to wow. sit here and look at the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years, and not know which of these paths I'm going to be going down, but knowing that they're all open to me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I actually... I'm actually really comfortable with that feeling for once, you know, of, of knowing that I've got multiple ways that I could try to go at this. And so, you know, getting, getting work, getting more experience, getting through another tax season this coming spring, and then Mm -hmm. really figuring out, uh, over the next year or two where, where I want to take this thing. Awesome. And so I would love to end talking about and hearing your perspective on what advice you would give to somebody who might have might be in a similar position to you um, that you were in, you know, early this year. What would be something that you would like to pass on to them? This is the the thing that I did not do well, that Mm. it it, it was more ignorance than anything. I just didn't know, but that I did not do well in academia that I said, I am never going to make this mistake again. And that was find a mentor. I had, I had a dissertation chair, you know, I had the, the graduate advisor that I went and talked to and, and got to know, you know, I had people that were writing recommendations for me. I had, you know, people that I would meet up with at conferences, none of them reach that status of being a full on mentor, you know, a guide, you know, the Gandalf, right? The person that's just kind of always there when you need them. And I said, before I even jump into another field, I'm going to have that person, that person who will put his or her reputation on the line for me, that will put his or her time out there for me. And I made sure I had that. So the Mm. the CPA that I started working with back in the fall that told me to become an enrolled agent, that helped me set up my business, that started sending client work my way, and at the same time was always there ready to chat with me, was ready, you know, always answered the phone whenever it was me calling. Um, That person made all the difference. And so uh, you know, more so than any of the coursework, more so than, you know, getting clients, which, you know, again, I love my clients, but without that mentor, it, it 
none of that would have ever happened, right? You know, at least not nearly as quickly and not ne- nearly as easily um, and efficiently as it did. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, if, if you're if you're considering any kind of move, just start, and it's not going to be the first person you talk to. It may not be the tenth person you talk to, but just start reaching out, you know, locally, online, however you can find these people. Just anybody that seems like they have a little bit of interest in their field left that they have a little bit of excitement about what they're mm. doing left, start reaching out to those people, mm-hmm. finding out what they think of the field, right? Do, uh-huh. do they even still have a positive outlook on the field? Because, you know, the, the people that are in it are the one that know it the best, right? Anybody can look at it from afar and say, well, that looks like, you know, the grass is always greener, right? That looks like a better field than what I'm in now. But reach out to those people, find out what they would have done differently or done the same as far as the way they're going. Like I said, I started working for a CPA and his recommendation to me was become an enrolled agent, which is, it's a related credential. It's in the same field, but it's not the same credential. And it, mm. and, and he said, you know, we, we don't necessarily need more mm. CPAs, people that mm-hmm. are credentialed to work with big corporations and this kind of stuff. We need people that, that families can trust. We need people that small business owners can trust. That and, makes sense. and, we need them to have these credentials now mm. and, and you can get this enrolled agent a lot more quickly than you can. You know, it's mm. going to take you years to become a CPA. It'll take you a couple months to become an EA, you know, if, if you so do the interesting. work and, and we need those people now. Right. So the same way that, for example, in the medical field, you know, it, you know, you always have the MDs, right. The, the, the people that the actual doctors, but then think about the last time you went to the doctor's office and how many engagements you had with a nurse practitioner or, uh, you know, you know, physician's assistant, one of these other uh, titles that these people can do almost everything, Mm -hmm. right. That the MD can do for you. And, and probably they're more specialized in the thing that you need than the MD is. Right. And so, um, you know, as an enrolled agent, uh, you know, for now, this is, you know, I had to take three tests on taxation, whereas a CPA needs to take one test on taxation, oh, interesting. you know, and, and then the other three tests are other aspects of accounting, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the continuing education that's required for an enrolled agent is mm-hmm. focused on taxation, whereas the continuing yeah. education for an accountant, for a CPA, can be focused on accounting or bookkeeping or financial statements or corporate taxation or corporate accounting, you know, all these different fields, auditing, right? All these different fields. But you know, with it, working with an enrolled agent that the specialty is taxes, and that's the work you need done. Right. So, and that's something I never would have known without this. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have just been on this track toward a CPA and not that that wouldn't have turned out. Okay. It would have just taken a lot longer and it would have been a much more difficult process in getting there and actually being able to work with clients. So that's my one big suggestion is find a a mentor, find somebody that is going to, you know, and, and now he's sending, he's referring people that want to be clients to me because he trusts that, that I am using his system, you know, that I'm running, that I'm working with my clients the way he would want to be working with his clients. And so, you know, he's putting his reputation on the line because he sends, yeah, he Mm -hmm. sends one of these referrals to me and something goes wrong there. Well, he's going to hear about it, you know, and, and, and maybe some of his other clients who referred this person to him are going to hear it. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, somebody that's going to put their reputation on the line, somebody that's going to give you the time of day, um, you have to find that person. And like I say, I, I did not know that I needed to find that in academia. That might have helped a mm. lot. I didn't do it, you know. Um, yeah. But but that that's my big recommendation. That's a good one. I love it. Yeah. And I, I think I've said this on the show before. We don't ask for a lot of help in academia. 
So um, we're so yeah, smart, finding, right? We're, we're so, so smart. smart. We we're can do it. Figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, that's great advice. And I would say, yes, I would echo that. Definitely. Look up to where someone or look for someone that's where you want to be, basically. Exactly. And they likely can help you and say, here's how to shortcut because I exactly. made mistakes. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, I would love to uh, share where you are at on social media so people can find you. There might be some households out there needing your help or some small businesses as well. So yeah, where are you hanging out? So my website is jwellscfo.com. CFO stands for Chief Financial Officer, and that's what I want to be for you. You know, that's usually a title that big corporations have, but I want you to feel like as an individual or household or a small business, you also have your Chief Financial Mm. Advisor, your your financial, uh, your Chief Financial Officer, your your financial advisor, your your accountant, your bookkeeper, your tax person, all in one. Um, So jwellscfo.com, also on Twitter at jwellscfo. Awesome. Yay. Well, thanks for coming on, Dr. Wells. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me and and really hoping uh, your listeners will, uh, you know, look look at thinking about how they can start applying some of their specialties mm. uh, toward thinking about how they can do it for themselves. Right. Okay. You know, and, 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 you know, we put so much as academics, we put so much out there for our students, but there's a lot mm. of services that you can turn into, even if it's just a side gig, even if it's just, yep. you know, just, just in the, just in your, in your spare time, there's a lot of that kind of work that can be done. And if, if you are looking for help on the financial and legal side of that, then it's out there. It's out there. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Wells has your back. That, yeah. I love that's what I loved about this episode is how you took something that you enjoyed in undergrad and that's where you decided to go with your business. You know, obviously having a PhD and studying international politics and teaching has benefited you, but you did kind of go in a little bit different of a direction. So I think that that'll be really inspiring for people. You don't have to do something even directly related to your PhD or your research. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, that, that heart of the teacher, right? No matter what you get into, Mm. if you have clients, even if you have customers, right? People will always respond well to leaving that meeting feeling a little bit smarter than when they came Mm. into it. And, you know, it's hard with a room full of 30 or 40, 19 year olds, knowing if any of them (laughs) left that way. But when you sit down and have a one-on-one with a client or a customer, you get a real strong sense of whether they're leaving that room feeling Mm. a little bit smarter. And, and, for that, for that heart of a teacher, that's a lot bigger of an impact, I feel. So good. Yeah, and especially something as scary and as nebulous as the tax code. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, right. please make me feel exactly. like I know what's going on. So if you can break that down, that is, that is definitely a positive. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being on, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Have a good one. You too.